Introduction by the Author to a Defensive Idealism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. A Defensive Idealism by May Sinclair. Introduction by the Author there is a certain embarrassment in coming forward with an apology for idealistic monism at the present moment you cannot be quite sure whether you are putting in an appearance too late or much too early it does look like personal misfortune or perversity that when there are lots of other philosophies to choose from you should happen to hit on the one that has just had a tremendous innings and is now in process of being bowled out as long ago as the early nineties idealism was supposed to be dead and haunting oxford i know that the new realists have said that it is now a fashionable philosophy but either they do not really mean it or they mean that only philosophies in their last decrepitude become fashionable at all they mean that nineteenth-century monism is a pseudo-philosophy of the past and that twentieth-century pluralism is the living philosophy of the future it is possible to agree with this view without accepting the program of the pluralists i think it may be said that certain vulnerable forms of idealism are things of the past and that the new atomistic realism is a thing of the future at any rate of the immediate future but we know of old realisms that died and decayed and were buried and of new idealisms that died and rose again in india the sankhya philosophy of the many fought the vedanta philosophy of the one it can hardly be said to have driven its opponent from the field pragmatic humanism and vitalism are going from us in the flower you may say of their youth and they were robust philosophies m bergson even made philosophy the vogue in mayfair for a whole season and so i think that some day which may be as distant as you please the new realism will grow old and die and the new idealism will be born again it will be born not out of its own ashes nor out of its own life only but out of what is living in the system that for the time being has superseded it the drastic criticism of their opponents is what keeps robust philosophies alive and seeing the great part that idealism has played in the past i cannot think that to choose it if you have any choice in these matters is perversity it is however a personal misfortune when your choice causes you to differ almost with violence from those for whose accomplishment you have the profoundest admiration you cannot help feeling that it would be safer to share some splendid error with samuel butler and m bergson or with william james and mr bertrand russell if the uncompromising virtue of mr russell's logic left him any margin for error than to be right in disagreeing with any of them in samuel butler's case i feel no sort of certainty that on the one point where i have differed from him i am even approximately right his theory of personal identity is free from certain complications which are serious drawbacks to mine mine if tenable would solve the one serious difficulty of his it would also go far to support the argument for human immortality this however must tell against it rather than for it 
by suggesting an unscientific party pre panpsychism has an irresistible appeal to the emotions i like to think that my friend's baby made its charming eyelashes that my neighbor's hen designed her white frock of feathers and my cat his fine black coat of fur themselves because they wanted to instead of having to buy them as it were at some remote ontological bazaar but emotion doesn't blind me to the possibility that things may not after all have happened quite in this way and this is the only appeal of any sort that butler does make he is pure from the least taint of what mr bertrand russell quoting mr santayana calls maliciousness as for personal identity both his theory and mine are open to the objection that they are not theories of personal identity at all in this matter i feel as if i had used butler and perhaps abused him for my own purposes he has given me an inch and i have taken an l still i think my l was very fairly suggested by his inch discovering dilemmas in m bergson's philosophy is an enthralling occupation while you are about it but it leaves no solid satisfaction behind it does not as samuel butler would have said give you peace at the last when it is all over you feel as if it had not been quite worth while what do a few logical dilemmas more or less matter in the work of a poet and a seer i said just now that vitalism is a robust philosophy it is nothing of the sort it is subtle exquisite fragile to try to analyze it to break through that texture of beautiful imagination is to lay violent hands on the living palpitating thing that endures only on the condition that you do not handle it one other part at any rate of what i have written calls for some apology my criticism of pragmatism which is associated with an honoured name the monist who hates pragmatism and loves the pragmatist who let us say abhors william james's way of thinking and adores his way of writing who in the very moment of hostility remains the thrall of his charming personality and brilliant genius that monist is in no enviable case but what was i to do i believe the issue between pragmatism and idealism is vital i believe in pragmatism as a branch and a very important branch of casuistry i do not believe in it as a philosophy it is a method and not a philosophy it is not even a philosophic method pragmatism is one long argumentum ad hominem and it is nothing more now the argumentum ad hominem is all very well in its way but that way should be purely supplementary it is a perfectly fair and legitimate method when employed as an outside prop to the clean metaphysical arguments by which a clean metaphysical case must stand or fall anybody may use it for all it is worth provided he gives due notice and isolates it to guard against infection mr mcdougall for instance defends animism with a long array of arguments ad hominem but he uses them under protest as if he were a little bit ashamed of them and he is careful to keep them in the strict quarantine of a chapter to themselves pragmatism by its very nature knows nothing of these precautions it does not sterilize its instruments before it uses them it does not want to sterilize them it is courageous 
it courts rather than fears infection it must stand or fall by its appeal to the pragmatic instinct the business instinct in men or it would not be pragmatism and so i do not think that the pragmatist is always fair to his opponents i do not mean that he weakens their case by misstatement before he demolishes it far from it you might say that the mere statement of the monist's case was far safer in william james's hands than it is sometimes in his own i mean that the pragmatic method faithfully followed lands the pragmatist in misrepresentation not of his opponent's case but of his opponent's attitude to call monism the philosophy of the thin and pluralism the philosophy of the thick is fair enough controversial practice rationalists may not like it but they have brought it on themselves but would it have occurred to anybody but a pragmatist to preface a serious course of lectures on his subject with a classification of idealistic monists as tender-minded and of pluralists as tough-minded you might just as well call your opponent a fathead at once and have done with it it is deadly it is damning it is unforgettable such epithets stick and sting to all eternity they keep people off monism they must have prejudiced william james's audience against it from the start before he could get in any of his logic and that is precisely what it was designed to do what was that audience to think when it was told that the tender-minded are rationalistic intellectualistic idealistic optimistic religious free willist monistic and dogmatical and that the tough-minded are empiricist sensationalist materialistic pessimistic irreligious fatalistic pluralistic sceptical observe how pragmatism appropriates all the robust and heroic virtues and will not leave its opponent one of them think of the sheer terrorism of the performance could you wonder if covered with that six-shooter professor james's audience plumped for pragmatism before it had heard a single argument each member of it must have registered an inward vow tough-minded i'll be that but does the classification really hold are the virtues and vices justly apportioned nobody thinks of kant and hegel as nice comfortable philosophers whose bosoms they could lay their heads on the third book of hegel's logic is not exactly an education sentimentale and the triple dialectic is not regarded by anybody except pragmatists as suitable reading for the mentally deficient kant's pragmatism of which of course i shall be reminded was an afterthought which doesn't prevent pluralists from using him as a whipping-post when they want to the author of die welt als wille und vorstellung was not precisely one's idea of an optimist there are passages in dr mctaggart's studies in hegelian cosmology from which you gather that he is not inaccessible to human tenderness but with a toughness that no pragmatist has ever equalled he denies his absolute to be a person he has stripped it bare of everything that is comfortable and nice if it comes to that what about the pragmatist humanist god who is so tender-minded that he cannot be held responsible for pain and evil and collapses under the sheer emotional strain of his own universe the god of pantheism may have his brutal moments and his moments of unbending but his worst enemies can't say he isn't robust 
and there is no tenderness at all about mr bradley's principles of logic as for the mr bradley of appearance and reality if he has a fault it is that in the interests of his absolute he carries hard-headed hard-hearted thorough-paced scepticism to excess by no possible manipulation of phrases can you make it appear that mr bradley is even soft in places he is in fact a tough whom one would have thought few pragmatists would care to meet on a dark night mr bertrand russell is about the only living philosopher who can stand up to him and we have heard before now of dogmatic realism and after all is it so very certain that logical ideas are tender and that facts are hard can you find a fact that's harder more irreducible than the principle of contradiction or than any axiom of pure mathematics facts have a notorious habit of elusiveness and liquescence as for thinness is there anything more tenuous than matter apart from our sensations of so-called material qualities matter of which william james says that it is indeed infinitely and incredibly refined the physicist is he who deals in phantasms of thought invisible impalpable compared with which even mr mctaggart's absolute is a perfect falstaff it looks as if the only things that stand firm in this universe are ideas truth goodness beauty there is not a fact that bears their imprint and their image for long together yet they eternal and immutable remain the backbone of philosophy is logic pragmatism has no logic it is spineless idealism may have too much logic it may be too rigid but this surely is a fault on the side of hardness rather than of softness at any rate the method of philosophy should be purely logical the idealist does claim purity for his method and with some reason the method of the pragmatist is contaminated with its genial contacts its joyous commerce with the metaphysically irrelevant pragmatism is an unsterilized philosophy i do not say it has not done good service in criticism that it has not reminded us of the existence of things that idealistic philosophers forgot but if it were passionately adopted consistently held and carried to its logical conclusions the eternal ideas of truth goodness and beauty would lose their meaning and we our belief in them luckily people are seldom logical and consistent and passionate in their adoption even of wrong methods in philosophy it is painful to differ from m bergson and from william james but it is dangerous to differ from mr bertrand russell if there is dismay just at present in the ranks of idealistic monism it must be mainly owing to his formidable methods of attack i hope there is dismay i should be very sorry for the idealistic monist who did not feel it his complacency would do more credit to his heart than to his head humanism pragmatism and vitalism have all gone for him but barring the shrewd thrust of william james they have gone with no particular flair for his special vulnerability and when touched he could always point to some wider chink in his opponent's armour the assaults of vitalism at any rate left his position practically intact but the realistic pluralism of mr bertrand russell of mr whitehead of mr alexander and the new realists is a very different thing for the logical structure of vitalism is faulty 
though you feel instinctively that monsieur bergson has vision and that his vision is right with atomistic logic it is the other way about its structure is almost flawless though you may feel instinctively that its vision is not wrong but simply not there i do not think that even an atomistic logician would go so far as to maintain that instinctive feelings and algebraic logic have nothing to do with each other since feelings can be subjects of propositions but he would say and he would be perfectly justified in saying that if intellectual truth is your objective you must get your logic right first and settle it with your instincts and your feelings afterwards as best you may now atomistic realism gives no support to the belief in the beyond and very little encouragement if any to the hope of the hereafter and in this world there is an enormous number of people probably the majority of the human race whose instincts and feelings are passionately opposed to any theory which would deprive them of the belief in the beyond and of the hope of the hereafter many of them who would surrender the belief with composure still cling to the hope many would give up the hope if only they could be sure of the belief others again like william james are quite genuinely indifferent to the event the idea of life after death is even slightly disagreeable to them personally i do not share either the indifference or the repugnance but those who do not desire personal immortality for themselves may desire it for others who are dearer to them than themselves they cannot face with equanimity or indifference the thought of the everlasting extinction of these lives and many of them care for intellectual truth as passionately as they care for their hope and their belief and between those two passions the new philosophy draws a hard and fast line it says if you are out for truth you must play truth's game your feelings and your instincts must take their chance they must not be allowed to load the dice that is the gist of mr russell's austere and beautiful charge to the students of philosophy as it was plato's to follow the argument wherever it may lead to wait patiently when it puts on a veil there are passions and passions and it is to the passion for intellectual truth fiery and clean and strong that he makes his irresistible appeal there are still a great many people who think that the belief and the hope are more compatible with some form of idealistic monism than with realistic pluralism they think that if atomism is pushed to its logical conclusion there will be very little chance for god and immortality and i gather that realistic pluralists think so too is realistic pluralism really true if it is every hope and every belief that is incompatible with it must be given up but if it is not true if it is even doubtful it would be to say the least of it a pity that anybody should be lured from his belief and hope by its intellectual fascination i have tried to disentangle what is true in it from what i believe is merely fascinating i have tried to disentangle what is untrue in idealism from what i believe to be sound and enduring above all i have tried to disentangle in my own conclusions what is reasonable supposition from what is manifestly pure conjecture i have tried to state my adversary's case to the best advantage for him if i have failed in this it will have been through misunderstanding and not i hope through maliciousness 
some misunderstanding may have been inevitable in dealing with the purely mathematical side of mr russell's argument since mathematics are for me a difficult and unfamiliar country it is here that i have every expectation of being worsted in all this it has been hard to free myself from the fascination of pluralism when exercised by mr russell it is so great that almost he persuades me to be a pluralist if i have not surrendered it is for reasons which i have tried to make clear there is one side of the new realism which is not directly touched in these essays its ethics this ground is covered by what has been said about its theory of concepts or universals the platonic ideas but i believe that ethics owe a greater debt to the new realism than to any philosophy that has been its forerunner in modern time if goodness and justice are not eternal realities irreducible and absolute moral sanction is a contradiction in terms there will be no ethical meaning and no content that distinguishes goodness from usefulness or pleasantness or justice from expediency the work of mr g e moore is a perfect exposure of the fallacies and sophistries of hedonism utilitarianism pragmatism and evolutionary ethics the clearest and strongest statement of the case for absolute ethics is to be found in his principia ethica and in mr bertrand russell's philosophic essays the reader must judge whether absolute ethics and the moral sanction are secure on a basis of spiritual monism or on the pluralistic theory of outside realities they will remember that a purely external sanction is no sanction at all the metaphysical basis is crucial in the ethical question it may be that it is too late to reconstruct what realism is destroying it is certainly too early to forecast the lines on which reconstruction will proceed and it would take a very considerable metaphysical genius to do it these essays therefore only suggest the possibility of the new idealism no doubt many people will find that my questions are out of all proportion to my conclusions and that the conclusions themselves are too inconclusive to these i cannot give any answer that would satisfy them others will object that my conclusions are out of all proportion to their grounds and that far too much has been taken for granted they will protest against the appearance of an essay on mysticism in a volume professing to deal seriously with serious problems they may even look on its inclusion as an outrageous loading of the dice to them i can only reply that that is why i have given to mysticism a place apart i agree that mystical metaphysics are an abomination but metaphysical mysticism is another matter i would remind my readers that some psychological questions were part of the programme too that mysticism is of immense interest and importance in psychology and that i have criticized certain aspects of it as severely as its bitterest opponents could desire i am as much repelled by the sensuous variety of mysticism as i am attracted by its austere and metaphysical form i am as convinced as any alienist that its more abhorrent psychological extravagances are the hysterical resurgence of natural longings most unspiritually suppressed 
these exponents are worthy only of the pity we give to things suffering and diseased but there is another side even to what may be called the saint's tragedy there is a passion and a strain and a disturbance of the soul born of its struggle between religious dualism and its unconscious longing for the absolute and there is also a pure and beautiful mysticism that springs from the vision or the sense of the oneness of all things in god it knows nothing of passions disturbance and its strain its saints are poets and its counterpart in philosophy is spiritual monism the fact that this sense has been evolved steadily and perceptibly from the primitive savage's sense of the supernatural is no ground for depreciating it you might as well depreciate the mathematical attainments of a pluralist philosopher on the grounds that they have been evolved from the primitive savage's calculations with the fingers of one hand the question for students of comparative religion is not whether it is a survival for all life is a survival but whether its presence marks a reversion or a progression whether it is a sort of vermiform appendage or a form inspired with the secret of the life that was and is and is to be but i am painfully aware of the extreme uncertainty of my conclusions too if it had been possible to give them the form of questions without making a mess of my sentences i would have done so it would have shown perhaps a greater courtesy to the inscrutable in any case i do not want to be wholly identified with my imaginary monist who is so undaunted and cocksure under the horrible mauling he gets from vitalists and pragmatic humanists and pluralists he does not i am afraid always display the very best metaphysical temper though i think the pragmatic method a wrong method in philosophy i have used it in one section of my final chapter but i have followed mr mcdougall's good example in placing it where it could do no harm so many sources have been drawn on that but a small part if any part of this book can claim to be an original adventure the best of it is only a following of good examples where i have touched on general psychology i have invariably followed mr mcdougall as the best available authority but readers who are not familiar with his work should realize that he is not responsible for any theories i may have based on it and most likely he would not endorse them my thanks are especially due to my friends mrs stuart moore evelyn underhill who first introduced me to the classics of western mysticism and to whose work in this field i am more indebted than i can say and mr cecil delisle burns who made me acquainted with the new realists and held continually before me the risks i ran in differing from them and to mrs susie s brierly for criticism relating to an important point in experimental psychology also to dr beatrice hinkle of cornell university for kindly allowing me to use her admirable rendering of the hymn i am the god atum which appears in her translation of dr jung's psychology of the unconscious and to the editor of the north american review for leave to reprint my article on the gitanjali of sir rabindranath tagore may sinclair london january twenty fifth nineteen seventeen end of author's introduction recording by expatriate in bangor maine